0: Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU International Cinema, where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema. I'm Chip Oscarson, co-director of the International Cinema Program. In our discussion of the films today, we'll presume that you've seen them, so we won't be giving any spoiler alerts, uh, but there will be time codes in the episode notes if you want to skip around. Today we're going to be discussing the films that were shown at International Cinema from the 19th to the 22nd of February. These films are Millennium Actress, a Japanese anime film from 2001, written and directed by Satoshi Khan. The Wave, a Norwegian disaster film directed by Rohr Uthog from 2015, and the next film in our Anthropocene Cinema series. We have the last installment, Pierre Buzikov of Sergei Bondarchuk's 1966 adaptation of Tolstoy's War and Peace. And then finally we have the documentary about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, directed by Abby Ginsberg from 2017, entitled And Then They Came for Us. So we have a special guest here on the podcast once again to help talk about Millennium Actress. We have Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, our sound engineer. Thanks for being here again with us, Jojo. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for having me. It's
0: always good to have you come. Uh, anime is something that is a bit of a passion for you, I think. and Yes, so
1: definitely. You can't see it here, but I have a shirt. <laughs> that I'm wearing this that, time.
0: That's right. Right next to you, Utah County, I voted. So yeah, exactly. So it's a good, good plug for, for both. Okay, so we previewed a little bit of Millennium Actress uh, a couple weeks ago, and people have now had a chance to see it, so we can go a little bit deeper into it. Yes. Um, what's, tell us about what's so great about this film to you.
1: Many things. Too many things um, <laughs> to cover. Let's see. Uh, as I was saying last time... Satoshi Kon is very good at showing different realities or different versions of reality. And in this film, he's really interested, I think, in memory and especially preserving memory and history through the work of this actress's films and her career. You know, you're, you're going, you have these two filmmakers who are going and interviewing her and what's really cool is that as she's describing her, telling her story, we're seeing these snapshots from her films, but they're mirroring her real-life experience as she's searching for this mysterious man who left this, uh, this key, and she's trying to return the key to him. And it's not always clear what is... Her story and what is part of the films that she was in, or
0: even part of what the filmmakers who are coming to do this documentary exactly. supposedly, because they keep showing up in these films as yeah, well in yeah. interesting kinds of ways. Yeah,
1: and it's I think it's it's especially interesting because you have all of these different characters in her life are taking up different roles in the films. You have yeah. Aiko, who's kind of her. Um, adversary, in a, in a way. She's positioned opposite her in all of the films. In addition, she's also looks down on on Shioko. There's also the character of the, the policeman who keeps popping up. This policeman with a scar who's chasing the mysterious man, this artist. He appears in all of the films. But then you have the filmmakers appearing, Genya and Kyoji. But Ginya, even though he was around as a younger version of himself in her real life, he was working at the at the studio. He appears in like he'll take part in the reenactment of the film, even though he wasn't there. But within the the fiction of those films, he's helping her escape in many different problems that she's facing and i think that's that's this really interesting thing because it's like they're going back and reconstructing what happened
0: but one of the things I like about that reconstruction, though, is that it's not a reconstruction that the past kind of exists objectively out there and we can kind of just go latch right. on to it. The, the past is always infused with the present. Oh, right? absolutely. And you're never yeah. able to kind of forget that, that we always see the past through our present moment. And so the all of these metacinematic moments, right, where, you know, and, and the frame is so confusing here because it's just the frame is being broken constantly yeah. so that you have absolutely no idea what world is, is the, you know, quote-unquote real world, right? And that exa- is exactly the point. Even our own present moment, you know, just like we view the past through the present, so we view yeah. the present through the past, right? Yeah. And so there isn't this kind of clear organization of temporal frames. Mm-hmm. They all get jumbled up together. I mean, it's this really wonderful enactment of a kind of a post you know, a postmodern historiography, and that everything is present simultaneously. And very few works of art are able to pull that off, because we're so bound in narrative, right? That narrative kind of takes place in time, and it it goes across time. This, I mean, it throws it all up in the air.
1: But again, I think, even though it is this sort of fragmentation and the way that memory works where we're seeing her memories of her films and her story combining in really interesting ways. I think it's a lot more straightforward of a narrative than it initially appears to be yeah. even though there's this this complicated element. I think watching it multiple times it's not too complicated. You know, it's not inaccessible. There's yeah. definitely a through line
0: that holds it all together. Yeah, well, it's interesting how you come back to the same moments too. Um, that you know things get get repeated. And and that her, may be... Her
1: bumping into the the, her, the artist.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 these become the things that kind of helps give it a, a different kind of structure too, right? right? Even though it's not the, the same kind. One, one thought that I had towards the end of the film, I, I felt like it was an interesting enactment of, of Keats's poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, right? And so, you know, in this poem, yeah, it's a romantic poem, of course, from the 1800s, but the you know he's contemplating how beauty eternal youth and beauty are kind of captured on this urn mm-hmm. but it it comes at the price of being frozen in time right that will never you know the, the if i remember the man chasing the woman on the you know on the urn is never he never reaches her right mm-hmm. it's it's always and that's uh, there's kind of a a thrill in that and there's this recognition in in this film as well the that it's all about the chase yeah. you know it's about the play between these things it's not about Ever you know, actually coming together, or actually finding the guy, or giving the key, and in fact, it might not be about anything, right? right? That there might not be any meaning to this. It's only the meaning that we've kind of endowed it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: How how does this film compare to uh, to some of his other films? Because th- this is uh, we're going to be showing yeah. Tokyo Godfathers later on in the semester. We'll have a chance to get deeper into that. But uh, some of his other films, like Paprika, these are, are quite popular films too. And yeah.
1: I think it's really interesting because this is his second film, and I think it really feels connected to his first film, Perfect Blue, in some ways, because Mm -hmm. in that film, it's about this pop star. She's trying to become an actress, and as she begins to participate in this kind of uh, thriller, exploitation, drama, TV show she starts to lose her sense of reality and the fiction in a similar way to this film combines with her reality so she'll be something will happen that's really kind of terrifying and then she looks over and there's this studio audience in front of her so it's this this it didn't actually happen but maybe it did who knows Again, he's really Satoshi Kon's really playing with that. I think Millennium Actress is probably more uh, kind to its characters. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, Paprika is interesting because not only is it playing with this sense of reality but the the unreality the dreaming world is coming into the real world they have these this technology that's allowing dreams to manifest in the physical space and so by the end of the film the whole world is caught up in this collective dream where all these strange things are happening there's like you know, giant elephants and, you know, all manner of crazy imaginings wandering around the planet and, and different versions of, of the characters. There's dreaming, dreaming versions and awake versions of these characters. So I think he's really into playing with reality and identity, In some really interesting ways. In Perfect Blue, there's two versions of the actress. She begins to do things that she has no memory of, and she begins to like follow herself or Hmm. see herself in different places. And, you know, not to spoil anything, but that comes back around in the end, in the climax, in some really interesting ways.
0: Yeah, I find this to be a really interesting way of, of deconstructing our our sense of the stability of the world, right? And the way that, you know, that media and texts, they, they circulate and um, and really getting at how they help to construct our, our sense of the real. You know, that the real does not exist objectively outside ourselves, but is always constituting us and being constituted, you know, by these, by these texts. It's, it's a shame This he, uh, he died. Am yeah, he I I passed right about away that? in 2010. Yeah, that to, to think about where this project might have eventually gone well, is, is really I, yeah, kind of absolutely. intriguing. Yeah. And
1: he had a film in the works, actually, that is never going to be finished because he passed away while he, was, while he was making it. But it's a real shame, because I think his particular view is a rather interesting one that I don't think we have a... There's not really a, another filmmaker interested in the same things or doing it in the same way. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jojo, for, for being here with us, for sharing your knowledge and your passion <laughs> yeah, so, <absolutely>. both together.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Now let's turn to our discussion of The Wave. Uh, to help me do that, we have the Assistant Director for International Cinema, Mariodar Oscarson. Mariodar, thanks for coming. Hi, Chip. You're a regular and have always good, interesting things to say. Tell me a little bit about The Wave.
2: Well, let's start with a conversation that um, we had yesterday with one of our friends. She saw The Wave and she was curious and even saw uh, the sequel called The Earthquake. And she, she asked us, she said, well it's pretty a typical disaster film. What's the interest in international cinema? Why, why did international cinema bring the wave to the program this
0: semester. Yeah, I mean the the short answer to that as well it's in Norwegian. <laughs> it's but a Norwegian. but that's yeah, that's <laughs> just cuz a, a films in a foreign language doesn't usually help it to make the cut. For for me one of the reasons why I was interested in this showing this particular semester at International Cinema was in the context of the our Anthropocene Cinema series cuz I think it represents it is it's a fairly typical genre kind of film in that it's about a disaster you know, hitting, and these disaster films are fairly predictable, right? You can you can trace through, you know, other d- disaster films in recent memory, like, you know, Day After Tomorrow, or, you know, or even kind of alien, you know, Independence Day, you know, type aliens, you know, coming to Earth and destroying things. They, they follow rather predictable sorts of storylines. You know, in this one, we have a scientist who has an idea. He's kind of a renegade. Nobody wants to believe him. You know, he's making this argument, but nobody wants to listen. And you have corporate interests, I, I think you could say, or invested interests that kind of keep people from being able to hear what's being said. So in this case, he's talking about the danger that this potential landslide poses to this tourist town. And, you know, the response is, but you know, what are you going to do? Shut down tour season, right, in the middle of, of things? And and what's interesting in this particular film is that it, it, this is a real place that we're talking about. This town really does exist in Norway, and it really does. I think there's like 150 cruise boats that come into port every single year. So this is, you know, it's not inconsequential. But of course, then something happens, right? And then it's a timeline, you know, narrative to to solve the problem, to save the people that need to be saved. And you get some spectacular effects, you know, that come in. You get a post-apocalyptic kind of landscape that's shown to us. And then there's a question of what emerges out of all of this. And usually there's some kind of, you know, rebirth or hope for the future, something like that.
2: And hope for the future in this film, I mean, the family is intact. That's something we could discuss. Like, everybody in the family is, I mean, hurt emotionally. They have to survive. Uh, They had to do terrible things as well. In the case of the mother, she had to, in order to save her life and... Her son's mm-hmm. life, she had to kill someone, drawn the man that was stuck with them in, the, in that room. So there's a lot of like psychological healing to do, but the family, is still intact this family survived
0: no that's exactly right. and for me i was a little bit perplexed by this um, especially being a scandinavian film so on the one hand it's conforming to all these generic kind of requirements and even the happy ending for hollywood you gotta have a happy ending In scandinavia you don't have to have a happy ending so that's definitely a kind of choice that's that's being made the, the family at the end, I think it has to be that way to give us some hope. I mean, to come back to the other question, though, about why this at I see, I think that it's important to think about this genre and to analyze this genre a little bit about what are some of these assumptions that we're making. This distinguishes itself just a little bit from the typical disaster films, I think, in that I think it is trying to work on a couple levels, and not all of them try to do that. And in this case, I think it's pretty obvious how its wanting to suggest itself as kind of an, an allegory of climate change. Because it's the same kinds of dynamics, right? The scientists who do the research have the you know the warnings that we don't want to listen to because we have economic interests that keep us from you know from wanting to make the kinds of changes that need to be made. In this case the the geologist is quitting his job to go work for an oil company and there's these kind of subtle implications that somehow he's he's selling out right there's a critique of the family not being rooted but being willing to uproot themselves to go to somewhere else right this kind of mobile you know society that that we we exist in today that keeps us out of touch with the way that things are even some of these moral choices that for example that the mother needs to make right that the man who's you know going to Drowned her son, so she drowns him instead, right? That there's we're all kind of complicit, you know, in all of these kinds of things. And I think that all of this is trying to get us to think about these kinds of questions, you know, even more and to, to see a parallel. Norway, of course, is as a country, is deeply invested in oil. At the same time that it it also is investing in alternative energies, that's where Norway has made all of its money, is, is from its oil reserves. So this is this is all going on. The happy family at the end, this is, I think, about trying to give us a sense that there is kind of hope. But in some ways, it was the least fulfilling part of the movie to me.
2: Mm. Well, let's see what the sequel brings. <laughs> the, the
0: sequel, yeah, the sequel. I'm not sure that the sequel is going to make it. It, it sounds um, even more sensational, and without this kind of interesting dimension that gets us to think a little bit more broadly about uh, you know issues like climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it, it interesting that we we have a hard time of imagining climate change for, for what it is. We, we want to fixate instead on these moments of spectacular violence, right? So in this case, it's this giant wave and, you know, the special effects are, are well done yeah. here. And, and that's one of the reasons to go see the movie, right? It's because of the special effects. But the fact of climate change is it's it's much slower than that. And the effects are much less obvious, right? So here we know that the hillside is weakened, you know, the landslide falls into the water and creates the wave. There's easy causation, right? But when you're dealing with climate change, a lot of times the, the causation is is complex so that you can't even understand the connection. Factor. It's not Exactly. It's not just one factor. So you can't see the connection between the things that contribute to, to climate change that are myriad, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, the accumulation of lots of, of small kind of inputs, you know, that produces these spectacular things in other parts of the world that... Was it because of climate change or was it just because of, you know, kind of a freak occurrence of nature? I mean, it can be hard to see. You only begin to see it when you see these larger patterns. And so this is one of the problems with a lot of environmental crisis is how do you visualize it? And a lot of times it ends up being visualized metaphorically, like with these disaster films. So this is my, my answer to, you know, to our friend who, uh, you know, who asked the question, you know, is this you know, typical I see things as well yeah, I think this that we semester, should semester, yes. Because <laughs> both well the movie. series and, and thinking through these kinds of questions and it's always productive to put films in conversation with each other, I think.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, we had uh, a documentary this week that, likewise, was thought-provoking and, and provocative, and then they came for us about uh, Japanese internment during World War II. We had a great lecture by Brian Roberts from the English department talking a little bit about this. What what are some of your impressions coming out of this film, writer?
2: Well, first of all, I, I have to point out the lecture. I really enjoyed the lecture by uh, Brian Roberts, and he um, touched on something that was very interesting the link between the prisoners of the camp especially in utah he mentioned the camp in utah in topaz
3: right
2: and that camp is the bottom of a cambrian ocean so very rich in all kinds of um
0: trilobites, trilobites and, and things like and that fossils and
2: things and fossils and the prisoners started making art with what they found that was a way to occupy their time and so linking just the time of their imprisonment was, which was very long, four and a half years. I mean, mm-hmm. these families left everything. To be or had confined. everything
0: taken from them at kind Absolutely, of rock they bottom left prices. Everything, everything
2: was taken away from them. And um, they had to occupy their time. It was a very hard, trying thing for them to be imprisoned that way as American citizens. That really meant a lot to me, that, that lecture. The pictures, Dorothea Lange's pictures, her eye looking for the the human cost of that imprisonment. Those pictures for me were were very um, powerful and how the importance of documenting our lives and the lives of others, especially when we see injustice, because as it was said in the documentary, if not for those pictures, those events, those imprisonments would be a blimp in American history. So the importance of art, the importance of testifying and showing, and that was very well, the documentary was, was a lot about this as well.
0: Well, I really appreciated, too, that the documentary took the opportunity to compare, just very, very briefly, some of the different photographers, the photographers who took, yes. I mean, Dorothea Lange was hired by the government, so I think that hers is the biggest collection of them, but Ansel Adams took pictures of this as well, as well as some other photographers, both well-known and as well-known.
2: Really but criticized in the documentary because they show prisoners as, as humans, which was very important because at mm-hmm. the time they were in in the government uh
0: discourses discourse, yeah.
2: they were shown as, as monsters. And so showing them as just humans was, was very important.
0: But they it's don't all do it the same. Look
2: yeah. like in Anselm Adam showed it as a in an idealistic way idealistic. I
0: mean, it's lives. almost too pretty, right? Exactly. In, in the way that an Ansel Adams yeah. photograph is.
2: And, and the Jose Lange did not, that was the opposite. She yeah. really wanted to show the despair. And those pictures are, are very touching. Yeah. And so that, for, from an artistic point of view, was absolutely beautiful and as well a meaningful point of view because those pictures are powerful. And the message of the documentary as well was, was very powerful about present day politics.
3: Yeah,
0: it makes a strong connection to discriminating people on the basis of religion uh, to come into our country is a a strong parallel to this kind of, of discrimination where people are not given due process. They're not kind of given a fair chance, right? And what was interesting to me is the the rhetorical strategies that it points out that are being used where people on the one hand will say, well, no, it's not the same, but FDR did do this, right? I mean, it's they're disavowing on the one hand, but then also claiming that there's precedent for doing this, which is, a I I think, a very morally questionable position to do, especially given the fact that, um, and this is something that Brian Roberts pointed out in his lecture, all three branches of government have at different points gone to pains to disavow, you know, what, what happened, that this was illegal, this should not be seen as precedent, that this is, a, this is kind of a stain on our nation's history, not something that we should ever want to repeat.
2: Absolutely. So powerful on many, many levels, like a, a very well-done documentary that meant a lot.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, for the last film this week, I sat down with uh, Professor Mark Purvis in the Russian Department to talk about war and peace and to reflect a little bit about the four episodes that we've experienced together. Now joining us to talk about War and Peace, we have Mark Purvis from the Russian program here at BYU. He has taught here for a number of years and is a specialist in Russian literature, particularly. He gave a great lecture to kick off our our four-part film series. Mark, thanks for being here with us. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your overall impression of this film as a film. I know that you don't necessarily consider yourself a film guy, but you teach this novel a lot, and so I'm kind of interested in your take.
3: Right. Well, I'm more of a song and dance. Dance man. when it comes to my preferences in film. No, I have to admit sort of at the outset that I absolutely love this novel. I love this remastered version of War and Peace. I make no bones about appearing objective when it comes to this. This novel and the film in some ways has shaped my life and shaped the way that I think it's. it informs my view of the world. And so... I come in with an unabashedly sympathetic (laughs) reading of both.
0: Yeah. So you think it's a good reworking of the Tolstoy novel? I think
3: so. Like I said, I'm not not, uh, a film person. I'm more of an Adam Sandler kind of guy. (laughs) No, not really. But I can only really stress sort of the major elements of the film Mm -hmm. and try to do so in a way that's divorced from my understanding of the novel. I think the two should be understood differently. A successful adaptation for me does things that are different from the original, but then also somehow return you to the original with a sort of a refreshed, renewed understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think the novel does a very good job of that. What I hear most often when I'm trying to convince people to read War and Peace, because I give it as a Christmas present (laughs) quite often. You might be getting one (laughs) soon enough. The first comment is, well, it's so long. Yeah, and I have two responses to that. The first is size matters, to end the age-old question. Yeah, size does matter. And what I would say about both the novel and the film is they're not long, so much in the sense that they take their time. Mm-hmm. And maybe that sounds like I'm quibbling, but if you go back to the film, how many shots of Andre and Pierre and Natasha take really a few minutes long? I mean, the waltz scene between. Andrei and Natasha is like six minutes long, yeah. and it's and it's not just a, a portrait of the opulence of Imperial Russia, but it's an insight into the sort of romantic tension between these between these two people.
0: Mm-hmm. And it wants to show that rather than than tell it, right? I yes. Mean, if, if the film tried to tell it, it would it would probably come off as a real clunker.
3: Yeah, so it's not just an homage to the novel, mm-hmm. right? Where we know it's written by an author who's not adverse to writing long passages, mm-hmm. right? But it's more a demonstration of the intimacy that's being built between in, in that relationship. I mean, in that waltz seat alone, this is one that's really stood out to me is the contrast between St. Natasha's interior monologue and, and there's something if you've been a teenager and you've been an awkward teenager, then this this film, this novel really should resonate with you. And at this great ball scene, Natasha finds herself surrounded by friends and family. And she's thinking, all of you, just get away from me. You know, I know this is seems like a, an occasion for chatting and that sort of thing. But I see you people all the time. And I wish I could get Andre's attention. And it's Pierre who goes over to Andre and says, you know, there's this Rostova girl. You know, maybe you should go and, and dance with her. And the dance isn't just lovely and beautifully imagined but again it gives you sort of a window into the sort of pressures but also the beauty of that relationship yeah although it's not terribly long lived
0: yeah that's interesting and i think it's interesting what you're saying about duration as well that you know what happens when you adapt you know a novel that that is is long I mean, it's it's long in every single way. I mean, both in page count, in terms of what it's trying to do, in terms of the time it takes to to do that. And I think one of the the failures of a lot of adaptations to to cinema is when you try to to replicate that in a two-hour movie, right? Yeah. And that's it's nice that they you know that the film takes its time to to expand that out. Even though I know it cuts out you know lots and lots of you know kind of sub stories and and things like that from it. It you know it, it's I think. I had the sense and I'm not as familiar with the novel as you are but that it's strategic in how it does that you still get a sense of that kind of epic
3: oh, duration yes. right? That I you're mean, being with the characters for The a while. first battle the battle of Schungraben, I think my pronunciation is correct that's the first sort of Witness of how many people were involved in this film. Yeah, the camera pans 120, back. Hundred yeah. <laughs> and twenty thousand extras, at least you know, in the Battle of Borodino, which yeah. was the bigger battle maybe, and it's, but and it's, it's an incredible number. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, and it's quite remarkable when the camera lifts and expands, yeah, and you see all of these people. Modern viewers and I have to say that I'm guilty of this as well. My immediate thought was CGI. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, the CGI, they're just faking it, right? That sort of thing. But they're not. And it gives it a, a lived texture Yeah. that is is uh, quite remarkable. The other thing about length, there was a scholar who said that, reading War and Peace, who said that God must have loved, God must love the little moments because he created so many of them. <laughs> and it really is applicable, I think. Yeah. To war and peace the extent to which characters sort of step into the screen mm-hmm. and then they step out mm-hmm. you know uh, developing no plot line at all and really it's it's the texture of, of experience in real life where people come into our lives and they have you know maybe a minor or major impression and then and then they leave yeah and so the film does a I think a very very nice job of capturing the verisimilitude that Tolstoy is going for in in the novel.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the way that the novel visualizes things, because this is one of the things that in the literature about the film has been pointed out. And I think it, it kind of, in, in watching it, it really foregrounds itself the way that the camera is a subjective camera. Oftentimes you're experiencing visually what certain characters are experiencing. And it tries to to make it not just visual. I mean, there's something actually haptic at, at you know, certain times about the, the way that the camera works. Is this a a strong hallmark of the novel as well, that you you have this strong visualization from certain perspectives that are kind of parallel to each other?
3: So the tendency in the novel is to begin with this sort of broad idea Mm -hmm. and then to localize it within the experiences of the characters. So let let me give an example. The film opens, I think, quite beautifully on the clouds and mm-hmm. the sky, yeah. and the sky will become an informing source for the experiences of certain characters, namely Nikolai Rostov and Andrei Balkonsky. It's sort of Andrei's task in the novel to accept that there are forces and influences bigger and maybe better than himself. Mm-hmm. And so that's you get a sense of that from the very very beginning, this sort of broad, abstract idea, which, and Tolstoy's not a fan of abstraction, and he takes this abstract idea and he makes it personal. Yeah. He makes it specific. And so it, it does provide the film a kind of immediacy Yeah, as these events are focalized through the experiences of the main characters.
0: And and there's a nice juxtaposition, I think, always between, as you're saying, kind of going between these two levels where there's something, there's a kind of a greater truth that that's being expressed but it's not expressed through kind of definitive statements no it's expressed through individual the the accumulation of individual characters and so you go between the sky and you keep returning to that right at the end of every episode and at key moments within the episodes and then you're you're literally down on the ground again yeah with the characters
3: so one example of that for me would include when before andre is going off to war again, for reasons that he can't explain, yeah. which is a problem, it yeah. seems like. His sister Maria is a very well-known scene, places an icon, right, and, and uh, kisses him, and it's very emotional. However, not for Andre. And he's sort of constantly looking past his sister. And the great line in the novel, and this is captured in the film t- too, is that he was too transfixed on the darkness beyond the door. And it's and it's this very tiny moment but it really sets up it sets in motion the trajectory that Andre will follow. And many Russian critics sort of see him as a dead character from the very beginning, so transfixed on the darkness, yeah right of the present, that he never he never learns to appreciate or when he does, it's momentary, right? The grandeur of the sky above him, the recognition. As he's laying dying on the battlefield, right? right? (laughs) I mean, this is Andre's problem. Yeah. Is he only ever comes to appreciate life by nearly dying? Yeah. And I think the sky serves as an sort of overarching metaphor for that. Yeah.
0: Let me ask you a question, maybe a final question here about Tolstoy. So you have Tolstoy, you have the character of Pierre, and there seems to be some strong parallels here, but then also, insofar that Pierre is played by the director, yeah. Bondarchuk, there seems to be a connection between these three.
3: Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's an ambitious casting choice. Right? <laughs> to cast Pierre, yourself as right. the director. Pierre is character. a young man, as the novel begins, and Bondarchuk looks about 50 yeah. uh, in, in the play itself, but you know, he's the director. If Woody Allen can cast himself alongside <laughs> gorgeous women right, then Bonoju can certainly cast himself in the role of Pierre. Now, what I think, so let me put it like this, Tolstoy really wants us to like Pierre and that's established from the very beginning in both the novel and the film because of this one quality and its social awkwardness and Tolstoy, and this is true throughout his fiction, he favors characters who are socially awkward, who say the wrong thing at the wrong time, right, who never seem to have sort of a well-polished phrase. Yeah. You know, holding in advance to be able to w- w- what I mean is it's not Oscar Wilde. Yeah. It's not Lord Goring in an ideal husband, right? With these wonderful sort of phrases prepared in advance. Pierre doesn't know what to say in any context. There's this great line in the novel that says he lacked the ability to enter a room. <laughs> and and uh, Tolstoy himself felt v- he was very very self-conscious about appearing dumb, appearing like he wasn't academically up to date. And so he had this mix of sort of respect and resentment for his contemporaries. Yeah, And I I feel like he puts that social awkwardness, not only in Pierre, but in Natasha as well. And when we meet Natasha, it's her name day celebration. She's running around, right? She's not behaving like a good girl, if you will. And it's at that moment where she and Pierre... Share this dance, this very famous dance where her father you know is, 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 is dancing ecstatically. So I think the issue is social awkwardness. yeah Tolstoy is, is placing that in the characters that he really wants us to like.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here to talk on the podcast, but as well for your your lecture. No problem. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program by BYU, supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, not only for being on the show with us today, but as well for helping us to sound great after the fact. Uh, thanks go as well to the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, we hope to see you at International Cinema in 250 the Kimball Tower.